Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Uh, my name is Brandon. If I haven't gotten to introduce myself to you yet, I'm sorry. I hope we get to chat afterwards. Um, I am very excited to try to walk you through these five chapters, actually, this morning. I'm very thankful because we do about 30 to 45 minutes per chapter uh, coming up to this week. So I know you're ready to, to handle we'll get out of here before dinner, I'm sure. Um, the title of the sermon today is uh, Joseph, Judah, Jesus, and Compatibilism. When you see the title, you can know from that immediately that I did not go to seminary because I'm not good at alliteration, um, and neither am I very good at acronyms or cool illustrations. And in general, I'm just not very cool myself, which I'm sure you needed me to tell you. Um, but I can promise you that I'm going to do my best here to try to paint a window for you through which to look to see the true living God. And we will be discussing this morning two things. One is a story that Tolstoy, if you're familiar, he was a genius. And he, he at some point in his life, he made this list of the most significant books in his life. And then he had an even narrower list of like the top, top, top most significance. And the story of Joseph was one of those few in that list. So that's what I'm hoping by the end of this morning, you will now understand better than most people in the world things are going on in this text. And as a bonus, we'll be going into one of the most controversial and important theological questions that humans have ever asked. And I'm confident you'll leave here knowing more about what the Bible has to say about that than most people who have ever lived. So that's my promise to you this morning. No cool stories or alliteration, but you do get that. So if you're just joining us, we've been working away through the entire book of Genesis, and we are oh so close to the end, which someone told me yesterday, thank God. Um, but there is some great stuff left. If you're just joining us, the 60-second recap of where we are at, who is Joseph? In Genesis chapter 12, there's this all-significant promise, God revealing himself to Abraham and giving him a promise that he would have many offspring, that he and the offspring would be blessed, and through them, they would bless the nations. It's a very significant promise. Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. We learned that through Isaac, this promise will continue primarily. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Through Jacob, the promise would primarily continue. Jacob has four wives from which he has 12 children, 12 sons from his favorite wife. He wrongly had a favorite wife and the oldest of those two sons from her was his favorite, Joseph. That is who Joseph is. And Joseph, in, in Genesis 37, we learn about, um, he, is, he is not very likable. He is spoiled, he is favored, and it is visible, and he leans into it. The other hardworking sons are out, and they don't like the preference, and he even, he doesn't do himself any favors. He uh, tells on his brothers and rats them out on something, we're not told what, but then very significantly, God gives Joseph these dreams. And he goes and tells them to his brothers. And these dreams basically are of the effect that one day all the other brothers will bow down to him. 
And it says explicitly in the text that they hated him even more because of the dreams. And I'm sure that was visible and known. And he goes, and guess what happens? He has another dream to the same effect. And guess what he does? He goes and he tells them. Okay? So he is not very likable. Now his brothers dislike him so much that they literally want to kill him. And they have a plan to do so where uh, the ten, well, maybe Benjamin's not around, we don't know, but at least 10 of his brothers see him coming and say, here he comes, let's, let's kill him. Reuben, the oldest son, is around and said, no, that's, that would kill our dad, don't kill him. So they don't, they just throw him into a pit to leave him. But then later on, Reuben's not around. Reuben's not around, and the brothers say, ah, here comes this uh, you know, caravan of traders, let's sell him to them, make a little money off of them, and we'll be rid of him anyways. So he gets sold into slavery in Egypt, where in Egypt, um, he ends up being successful and having all these terrible things to happen to him. So this is all last week about him. Uh, he was working for Potiphar, apparently he was like second in command, and he did very well and was blessed. God was with him, but then he was wrongly accused of something and imprisoned. But God was still with him. He was successful even in prison. And then there was these other people in prison who had dreams. He was able to interpret them. Those people got out of prison. They forgot him. For years, he's waiting in prison, but eventually Pharaoh has some dreams. And one of these men for whom they had a dream interpreted goes, oh yeah, well, you should talk to this guy, Joseph. I I forgot. And Joseph comes, interprets his dreams. And the dreams specifically say seven years of plentiful harvest are coming and they're followed by seven years of extreme famine in the entire world. And you better make ready. And the Pharaoh says, you are right, and I bet you're the right one to do it. And lo and behold, he is raised up again, and he's put second in command in Egypt, and through which he is able to save both Egypt and the known world from famine. So, there you go. It's Genesis 1, 12 through 30, or 41. And when I finished reading the, these chapters, these five chapters, I'm left with lots of questions, but two burning ones. And those are what we'll be going through this morning. The two big questions that I have is one, why does Joseph mess so much with his brothers? Why does Joseph take his brothers through all of this? Okay. And the second one is, who sent Joseph into slavery in Egypt? Was it his brothers or was it God? Those are the two questions. The first one, why is Joseph messing so much with his brothers? Now, maybe you don't see why that, this is such a big question, okay? Let me set it up for you. The reason this is a huge question is because we have already seen all the way through chapter 41, all these incredible Genesis themes, all these aspects of the story that are so significant, they've already played themselves out entirely, right? At least three big ones. One is Joseph's sanctification, right? The punk, spoiled brat kid... God has mercy on him. And this, these hardships and these trials, which are hard, they are common. That is the common story of Christians that God mercifully says, I'm not going to let you continue on this trajectory that is landing nowhere good. going to head nowhere good. I'm going to, it's going to be painful, but it is loving. And I'm going to write a new story for you. I'm going to transform you into a man of God who enjoys and trusts me and that I'm able to work through to do great things. It's a far greater story he does. That's last week's sermon. I highly encourage you to go back and, and listen to it. We see other things. Secondly, we already see Joseph saving the world. 
right? We've already got, he has already been miraculously put into a position to do the job of, of feeding everyone, right? He's, he's got the plan. He's had, he's interpreted the visions. He's raised him up and he's able to save the world from uh, starvation, which is awesome in itself generally. Um, but then it's also, uh, it's really significant because he's specifically saving the people of God. One of the themes of Genesis is this protecting this offspring, protecting the seed of the woman through whom this will be blessed. And that's a big theme of Genesis. Well, he's done that. He says explicitly in Genesis 45 that he's done this so that it would remain a remnant of Abraham. Yes, you might benefit uh, from keeping your Bibles open to this, this section. We will be referring to different verses as we go. That might help you. If I try to refer to verses outside of Genesis, don't worry about flipping to them. Just try to, try to listen. Thirdly, what did we already have as we worked all the way through Genesis 41? We've got the story of, of Joseph's sanctification and transformation. We've got the story of him saving and then the pictures that come along with both those things. We have the pictures of Jesus guys, right? The partial fulfillment of the promise through Abraham's offspring, all the nations would be blessed. Well, Joseph did that, didn't he? He fed them. We have this, like he saved them. That's a blessing to the nations, but it's a partial fulfillment of the true fulfillment, right? There is someone else who's going to be stripped of their garment. There's someone else who's going to be sold for silver. There's someone else who's going to be wrongly accused, imprisoned, left for dead and be raised up to deliver people. There's someone else, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the new and better Joseph. So it's like, okay, sermon's done. We could be done to wrap it up. But that's still just through chapter 41. And that's all the stuff I'm looking for when I read the Bible. What do I learn about God and me and our relationship, right? And I was like, I've got it. I've got the story of Joseph. There's Jesus. Why do I need more? Okay, sure. At the start of 42, we saw that Joseph, uh, the, the brothers bowing down to Joseph, they come, they bow down to him. Well, that's the fulfillment of the dreams. So you get that cool fulfillment happening. All right. And then in 45, chapter 45, he reveals himself to them. And then 46, which we didn't read any of, but that's when uh, they go get Jacob and the rest of the family and bring them to Egypt to live under the safety of the Savior. So just give me that. What is with the second half of 42? Through 44, why do we need Joseph messing with his brothers all along the way? Why not just skip that part? Okay, that is the big question. So, I'll tell you, let me tell you why. Because there's more cool stuff being pictured there. Firstly, let me tell you what the reason is not. When we look at what are Joseph's motives, why is he doing this from the perspective of his motives? I don't really know. I don't know what his motives are. Not entirely. I know what they are not. They are not vengeance. It's not revenge. Um, look at chapter 43, verse 30, for example. We read some of these. Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. That wept is the right word. It is it, sorrow. It is it is longing. He has affections for them. He's specifically talking about Benjamin here, but it already used the exact same word earlier about the other brothers before Benjamin's there. So whatever his motivation and intention and mindset is, it is not, I'm trying to get back at them. Okay, that's clear. 
So what's he doing? Well, what, is he, what he is doing consciously or not is Joseph is recreating the journey that he just went through. Joseph just went through the situation of being raised up and brought low and being raised up and brought low and raised up. And we see the exact same thing going on that Joseph is taking his brothers through this, this process of trying, testing, and of revealing who we are and what we have, right? So it's not, and it's not just for the brothers. Uh, we, I think we skipped reading it, but in the middle of this, when Jacob is being told, if we go back the second time to go get more food, this man, they don't know it's Joseph, this man told us we have to bring Benjamin, right? Or we get no food. We don't get our other brother back, Simeon, who's locked up. Like we have to take Benjamin and Jacob doesn't want to do it. He refused to let go of his now new favorite son, his new idol. He won't let go of that idol until finally there is just no more food. And if they don't go back, everyone's going to die, including Benjamin. And he has no choice. There is no choice anymore. And literally, the idol has to be pried out of his hand. And he says, fine, send Benjamin. If I'm bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. I want to spend time going over to Hebrews 12. We don't have time. I'm going to say about six, seven times during this sermon. I wish we had time for. I deleted all this stuff. Afterward, I'll be over here, a little Q&A time. Um, if, if anyone wants to ask questions or listen to other people's questions, I hope, I hope you'll come over there or write down things for future going. Hebrews 12, this idea of no loving, every loving father disciplines his children, but it's not punishment, at least not punishment alone. It is out of love. Every loving father does this and it is painful. It uses very extreme language in the Greek. It uses the same word that is like translated flogging elsewhere. It's, it's discipline with teeth, but it, it is from mercy. It is from God. And that is what Joseph is taking his brothers through. Now, again, I don't, when I say I don't know his motives, I don't know he's thinking, I am taking the place of God. I'm going to act like God in their life and I'm going to orchestrate high, low, high, low. Like, I don't, I don't know that, but the pattern matches really well. And there is one more piece of the pattern that is spot on. And I am certain Joseph did do this on purpose. And that is the silver cup. Silver cup's missing. And whosoever bag that cup is found in, that person is going to remain a slave in Egypt while the other brothers go free. Does that last part sound familiar? Joseph has recreated for his brothers the scene of his own betrayal. Let your brother go into slavery in Egypt and you go free. Will they do it again with Benjamin? It, it's a bit of a test. Or better word is it's an opportunity for them to show visibly, tangibly, palpably their repentance. And they do. They cannot do it. They say, we, will, uh, we, we won't do it. We're not going to leave him. And there's two, <laughs> there's two incredible details of this test you need to see for yourself. Firstly, who? Remember back, when Reuben wasn't around in the betrayal of Joseph, and the brothers decided to sell him into slavery, whose idea was that? Judah. 
who just a few chapters ago had his sexual immorality directly contrasted with Joseph's sexual purity. Judah, who is the one to speak up and, and plead for his brother? Judah. What repentance, what visible repentance. The longest, uh, it's the longest narrative in Genesis is the string that Judah says there on behalf of his brother. But that's one piece of the match is who, how? What's the nature of the plea? What's the nature of the plea? What's he offer? Read it again. Chapter 44, verse 33. This is what Judah says. He says, talking to Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph, says, now therefore, please let me, Remain instead of the boy. Let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. This is the first time in the book of Genesis that we see a like for like substitution. We've seen hints of it. We've seen hints of it several times. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sin, they make the pathetic attempt at covering themselves with loincloths. What does God do? God takes animal skins and covers them. There's already a great contrast there in itself, but the, there's a more picture there probably. Physical death. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, they don't die physically, certainly spiritually, but maybe some animals had to die. There was a substitute. Genesis 15, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, they cut up all the animal pieces. I know those of you who haven't been here yet, you have to just go back and listen, go back and read. Cut the animal pieces, and this was a, uh, a common pattern in that day when people were making a covenant together. They cut them up to say, if I, they walk through it, each person would walk through it, it's a, it's a symbol of saying, if I don't hold my side of the covenant, let this happen to me. But when God does this with Abraham, Abraham goes to sleep and he has a vision of a smoking pot passing through and a flaming torch passing through two symbols of God. Abraham himself does not pass through as if to say, God's saying, if I don't uphold my side of the bargain, let this happen to me. And if you don't uphold your side of the bargain, let this happen to me. Isaac being sacrificed, but not being sacrificed. Instead, a ram being provided. Instead, there's hints all over, but here is human like for like substitution in the Bible, friends. Guys, Joseph is just pointing to something above and beyond, and Judah is just pointing to something above and beyond. There is someone else from the tribe of Judah who one day would be a like-for-like like substitute for you. Not because someone tricked you, right? Like Joseph's brothers have been now kind of tricked and messed with in some way because of our own sin, which we have stepped into willingly. The same sin of our parents going all the way back to Adam. Jesus says, I will take on humanity so I can be a like-for-like like substitute for them. He says, let me remain instead of them so they can go home as family. So that's why. Why does Joseph take his brothers through this whole story in between? Why not just skip it? Because there's more story to paint. There's a greater picture to be shown. In showing this journey of sanctification, these types of Christ and Judah's repentance, especially all the brothers' repentance, especially Judah's, 
So much more we can draw out of here. It really is, guys. I go back to the last sermon because the story of Joseph's up and down and in prison is the same as now the brothers and the journey they're going on. Second question. Was it God or Joseph? Who, sorry, Joseph's brothers, who sent Joseph into slavery in Egypt? Read it again. Let's look at Genesis 45. So this is now the brothers. It's at the end of this story. Joseph is, a, is revealing himself to him. Tell him who he is. And Joseph is now providing a very interesting interpretation of all the events that have led up to this point. Okay, so look at 45. Look at, let's just read verse four and five again. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. You sold me into slavery. God sent me. Well, which is it? This was one of the biggest questions my entire life. I had two enormous questions before I became a Christian. One was like a really big, all-encompassing one. This was way more specific. One of them was just, if God knows everything that's going to happen, if he knows the future, then how does prayer affect anything? It was an awfully specific question, but it's one of my biggest stumbling blocks of like the idea of God don't make much sense. Okay. Which is just a small kind of, more specific version of the bigger question. God's sovereignty, man's freedom and responsibility. Huge question mark. Who chose this? Did Joseph's brothers choose this? Or did God choose it? If God determined that it would happen and it needed to happen this way, then how can Joseph's brothers be held accountable or responsible for it? If Joseph's brothers chose it, then how can God have had anything to do with it in saying that this would be, come to pass? Classic question, friends. Now, professing Christians, um, you might be surprised. They have a lot of different opinions on this. And often people give you long lists of theories and isms and stuff, and there's not, uh, it's hard to really tease out what all the differences are. But I actually, Brad, if you'll pull it up, like I know of at least seven distinct, very different, like each one has significantly different aspects to it and their understanding of how to resolve this question, how to reconcile God's sovereignty, God's will, God's determination of things and human freedom, human responsibility, human agency. There's at least seven options. So I'm going to go through each one and tell you the deep, I'm not going to do that. Okay. I would love to do that. I would love to do that because um, it matters. But very quickly, there's, I would just, I'll give you three rough groups from these seven. Um, very roughly, it is not on purpose that they're organized left or right. I didn't make the slide. Uh, on the far left, these are ideas that basically humans determine what happens. That's their answer to the question. God's sovereignty versus free will. Free will. Very rough, that's true. On the far right, God's sovereignty versus free will. 
God's sovereignty. And then there's a handful, again, the, I should, the middle, um, it's just on accident. Uh, just things, because things are in the middle doesn't make them right. I know that's how people teach all the time. Here's the extreme, this is extreme. It's this thing in the middle. It's not like that. But these uh, are different ideas where they are different attempts at trying to say both. The technical term is bothish. That's what they say. Um, trying to say. So ha- now, how to answer this question? Whole, I, just, I took out pages. I just took out pages and pages of stuff here, friends. How do you answer this question? I, guys, the scriptures are so important. And it's like, I hope when hope was talking about what this is and words, and they're all being true, they're all infallible. Like it's not water off your back. Okay. And it's very simple. I wanted to go into details so badly. Christians believe this book is God's word. Because Jesus believed this was God's word. Okay? That's it. There are countless examples of which I deleted them all for time's sake to to walk you through. Jesus thought this book, we'll just say the Old Testament. You can ask me about the New Testament later. He believed the Old Testament, as he would say from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, that was the last book in in the Tanakh, the Jewish ordering of them, it's the same books though, was the word of God. And we do not know better than Jesus. Okay? If you want to know the specific text, find me over here. And I can tell you very plainly, uh, I had lunch every for two semesters with a philosophy professor who was a process theologian. For the first five years of my Christian life, I was in a campus ministry. Every leader, everyone on staff was an open theist. I can tell you it is, and it's perfectly consistent. They do not believe what Jesus believed about this book. And they will tell you that. Some of them have a high view of scripture, higher than I think is justified given their other beliefs. But nonetheless, they will tell you, you must pit verses against other verses. It is not consistent in everything it teaches. And it is our job to tease it out. Which ones will you take as the trump card? And which ones will you flatten and say, oh, that was their best understanding at the time? And it's consistent. If God can't determine everything that happens within human freedom, within how, how do you dictate what words and sentences make it into this book? It's a consistent position, but it's one that does not make sense with what I just said. And the worst part of it is not how most people who don't like that view, their first thing they want to bring up is, well, that seems really hard. How do you pick which ones are in or which ones are out? And that's a fair question, but it's not the first one. The first one is, is that what Jesus believed? Did Jesus believe that some are in and some are out? Okay, no. So we're not going to. We're not going to pit. We must try to hold them all together. So that was the shortest summary I could give at that point. Um, let's look at some texts. And I'm, we're doing good. We're doing good. We got lots of time. Early in my Christian life, all the questions, I still have lots of questions, but there's even bigger, so many questions. And I, I would just read through the Bible and I would make lists of verses on different topics. Okay, 
how are humans saved? What is a human? Text on body, mind, soul, spirit, heart. And the longest document of all with no close second is text on God's sovereignty, human freedom, salvation, suffering, and just on and on and on. And I'm giving you like one from each section. Okay, that's it. I'm happy to send you that document if you'd like. What are the verses from which we get the idea that humans have free will? Shortest answer, there aren't any one. There's no one that says humans have free will. If you look up the word free will, if you control F that in your Bible, you'll find the term free will offering. It's something that was in the Old Testament. There are some good arguments from the idea of what is the image of God. But basically, and this is a very good point, the basic idea is the Bible all over the place places alternatives before humans. Do these things and live, do these things and die. Like what is implied by that? Like will, agency. It's a really good point, right? The, the, God says to the tide, go here and no farther. And it goes, okay, that's it. It obeys. Humans, don't eat of the fruit from that tree. No. So whatever we want to call that, like that we're going for something like free will, okay? Something like that. It's a fair point. But what about God's sovereignty? Well, it doesn't take much explanation. I don't have to do a long explanation. Just, just like uh, look down, okay? God's sovereignty. Psalm 115.3, God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purpose, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Or very simply, as Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father in heaven. Okay, what about what, about what people do? Maybe he's sovereign over other stuff. What about what people do? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's a proverb. So maybe we could have to be careful how you read Proverbs. One of the most important, I got to write an essay once on um, how does the Christian view of prayer affect the Christian view of sovereignty? God's sovereignty. And one verse, I never, I, you've heard it. If, you've have, if this is not your first time in church, you have heard this verse. And I had never thought about it very much. Jesus said, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to do What? You don't have to know all what that verse means or talking about, other than laborers are people. What are you, what am I, Jesus, what are you telling me to ask God to do? So which is it? The longest section, that, that document on God's sovereignty, human freedom, and every, every different 
applications. The longest subsection of the whole thing are texts called compatibilist texts. Theological framework called compatibilism. It's a, there's a type of a definition of free will called compatibilist free will. Don't Google it now. But these texts are ones that just state very plainly, humans are choosing, humans are agents, humans are responsible, and it is compatible with God was in control. It states it. There are hundreds and I would not use that word if I didn't count. I was in like the, the triple letters in my outline, right, on that. Hundreds. Here's one non-controversial one. It's just, it's just stating it. This is just an example. This is in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, but thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus. He put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. I picked that one because of how often it says it. He's earnest himself. He's going to you of his own accord. God put the earnestness in him. And it doesn't tell us how. It tells us that. It tells us that is the case, that God is involved in this these actions, these attitudes, these affections of Titus. And yet he's the one who gets credit. And this is positively, of course. He's the one who's doing it. Guys, the whole, it's really the whole Bible, but like the whole story of Esther, it doesn't mention God's name one time, not once. Read that book from cover to cover in one sitting and you will see the sovereignty of God and the freedom of humans in every chapter. It's unbelievable. Coincidence after coincidence after coincidence of the freedoms the book of Job, whoa. When's the last time you read the first two chapters? Satan, so not just humans, Satan, all the horrendous suffering that Job endures, it is terrible. And then there's this magnificent comment and prayer that Job has at the end. It's so plain to us. Job doesn't know. It's so plain to us readers. Satan did all of this. And yet Job's commentary is the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all these things Job did not sin. If it stopped right there, you could pull back and say, well, yeah, he didn't know he was ignorant. So like, he's, that's unbelievable faith. He's manifesting and he didn't sin in saying this incorrect thing about God. He doesn't know that it was Satan. You could interpret it that way, and that'd be fair, except for the rest of the verse. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all these things, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrongdoing. How can it be both? We're not answering that yet. We're still on the what, because I haven't looked at the story of Joseph at all, and we're not going to do it in detail, friends. If you go back to 37, God's hand the whole way. First off, Joseph's having dreams. The dreams cause his brothers to hate him. It explicitly says when they walk up, they says, here comes that dreamer. That's what they say when they see him. Here comes that dreamer. God gives them more dreams, right? Etc. You get it. The whole story of humans choosing, God 
orchestrating. And then you get to this interpretation in 45, you sold me, God sent me. Guys, step one is don't pick. We are faced with only a handful of places where it is major mystery. You don't pick if God is one or if he is three. You don't pick, is Jesus God or is he man? And we do not pick, is God sovereign or are humans responsible free agents? Don't pick, that's step one, okay? We, the, we trust the word and it tells us what is the case, even if we don't always get how. How is God one and three? Eh, we can say more than nothing, less than I would like. But if you had to pick, I don't know a better way to ask that or say that. Step one, don't pick. Step two, if you had to pick. I want to I lean here because Joseph leans. 45. You sold me. God sent me. 45 verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler of nations. He has made me. God has made me. Pharaoh didn't make me. God made me. He does all that he pleases. He works all things together according to the counsel of his will. It's endless, friends. The number of verses that are on God reigns. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none besides me, declaring again from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my wisdom from the far country. I have purposed it. I will do it. If you had to pick, there's a leaning, friends, towards God reigns. He is supreme over all. If you, in the final analysis, in the most decisive layer, we don't have to pick. We don't have to pick, but we need to see we are not all equal votes. (laughs) This is not a democracy between us and God. As R.C. Sproul says very famously, there are no maverick molecules. There's only one God, and this is his creation. There's more we can understand. I've only really argued for what. I've not said anything about how, and we can say more than nothing. There is really good insight in looking at these texts. It's very clear. Different intentions. The humans have one set of intentions and God has a different intention. There are very important nuances. What does it mean to be sovereign? We just say that word, but is it really clear what that means? We just say free will. It is sure as heck not clear what that means. And there are different definitions and it helps to dive in. There's other theological ideas about middle knowledge that may or may not be helpful. Just So you can ask some about that, but just notice we do this all the time. This is not too different than saying, what is God doing when he does a miracle? When God does a miracle, what's he doing? Which just, that seems obvious, right? What is the spaceless, timeless God doing in space and time to cause things that happen? Is he breaking the laws of physics? Is he an outside actor on the laws of physics? 
like, we just, we don't care too much because it's just like, I just want to be healed, right? When you talk, this is not too different. So just be a little more patient. What do you do? Really practical. Francis Schaeffer is asked this question all the time. And according to Oz Guinness, because I never heard him say it. Oz Guinness says he would say three steps. One, God's sovereignty and free will. What do you do? One, they're in the Bible. Two, you're not going to get to the bottom of it. Three, use which one you need to when you need to. If I can be so bold, I would correct his last one. Use which one you're supposed to when you're supposed to. Look to the scriptures guide. What set of circumstances am I in? What are parallel circumstances here? And what gets said? What gets emphasized? Apply that to your life. When Joseph had Potiphar's wife make a proposition to him, does he go, look at this door that God's opening for me, right? God must have led me to this place. He is sovereign. Or does he take responsibility and say, I must run. I must run. I must obey God. Okay. When, you, and the, when your conscience is calloused and we're indifferent to our sin, you, you can't remember the last time you felt sorrow for your sin, not for the consequences of it, not for the way it made you look. We felt sorrow from sin. Then you need to emphasize these responsibility texts. Like I wrote down Galatians 5. It has a whole list of sins, sexual immorality, drunkenness, fits of anger, rivalries. And it says, I warn you as I warn you to those, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now don't run to some sovereignty grace text and flatten that one. If, if this is your, if Galatians 5 is your circumstances, indifference to sin. But then if your conscience is crushed, if you're wallowing in the this, this shame and the guilt of life and you feel the effects of sin all around you and you're going, there's no way God sees me. There's no way God loves me. Or even if he does kind of, because he has to, because of Jesus, he doesn't like me and he sure as heck can't use me. I've made too many mistakes. He's screwed it up. And that is your mindset between you and God. You go to different texts, not Galatians 5. You go to Romans 8 and you say, who will bring any charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. It is Christ Jesus who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of God? Distress, persecution, nakedness, famine, sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You go to those texts and you preach those to yourself. God is sovereign and he has sovereignly decided to place his love and affections on you. And you preach that to yourself. This is good news, friends. Compatibilism is good news. No one wants to be a robot. If you are a natural materialist, almost everyone I've met believes in determinism and uh, go uh, further than that, fatalism, nature and nurture, some combination of the two. That's why you do what you do. That's why you believe the things you believe. You are a mechanism. But if you're a theist, yeah, well, personhood, consciousness is inherent to reality. So it's not a surprise that there's something in addition to matter and physics. We can be free. We aren't just robots. There is meaning and purpose and significance, and we take responsibility, and we are actors in it. But more important, the good news is you want God to be in control. You want this. You want this. You want this. You want this. Friends, this, this truth has been used 
in a cliche, inappropriate way so many times. We've all heard it. Well, you just got to give that over to God. Let go and let God, right? But do not let poorly timed, clumsy, even if well-intentioned uses distract you from the gloriousness of this fact. Guys, the, the, we, we read it in benediction all the time, Romans 11. It's at the end of one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible, 9, 10, 11, on God's sovereignty and free will and salvation. Specifically, what is he doing with Israel and the church? And it ends, the whole section ends. And if your heart doesn't match something like this, like, we're, then we're missing it. I'm doing a bad job, right? Or you're doing a bad job on the receiving end, right? It says, oh, the depth of the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how inscrutable is judgment and how unsearchable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he should be repaid him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Worship. If your theology does not lead to doxology, then you are doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. I, have, I was once with a couple of friends and we were talking about the great gift that is a, a cold beer in a hot shower. And uh, everyone knows this. And one person there said, you know, people say this all the time and I just don't really get what the big deal is. And another friend of mine didn't miss a beat said, you and that's means that we're doing it wrong if our theology does not lead to worship, to worship. Why? Because it's good. People always want me to do more application. That's fair. There's a really good point. I need to improve on that. But guys, it's kind of like you're standing in the Rockies and you're looking out over a glorious sunset and people are going, what's the point? Can you make this practical for me, please? And you're just going, look, which, just look, enjoy. What's the point of this steak? What's the point? I don't know. I, uh, it's delicious. God is delicious. Guys, you want him to, he can, you worship him because he can do stuff. How can Romans 8, 28 be true? How can it be true that he works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to this purpose? If he's not, if if the left side of that screen, whatever color that was, was true, then he's trying to work all things together for good. He's doing his best. That's what I say. Hey, Brandon, will you, can you do that for me? I'll do my best. That's what I say. God says, I purposed it, I'll do it. That's what we want to be true. And guys, I sympathize with the rebuttal to this so much. So, 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 so much just this week. I wish I could share the details. Good friend, horrendous diagnosis. And the family years ago went through one of the most horrific things that a family can go through. And now again, why again, God? You, you do, a part of me wants to just say, he had nothing to do with it. It wasn't him. He loves you. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't let that happen. And the sympathy piece is huge. Praise God for a God who can sympathize. He is our sympathetic high priest. That is enormous. And I won't minimize that at all. I just want to also add to that sympathy. And he can do stuff. It's not pointless. It's not an accident. His hands aren't tied because he's going, you know, I mean, I would get involved and I'd, they're praying for all these things. And I want to help. But, you know, my hands are just tied because I would violate free will all over the place if I did. So I won't. I can't. That's not good news. 
You don't want that. You want a God who says, this is what you want a God, this last thing, last verse. You want this, you want this to be true from Acts 4. For truly, truly, I tell you, together in this city, to gather together in this city was Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews and the Gentiles, to carry out and do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You want a God who, yes, he, he has created a world where there are these significant, responsible agents, where we contribute and we do things, and he is able to bring about unbelievable good, glorious things, despite all of our screw-ups. And not just despite, not just we screw things, you know, we withdraw tons, but he can deposit more, but he works through it, in it. It works together for good. Even if in the tiny little zoomed in focus, it's this ugly brown smudge, but when step back and we get all eternity, friends, to step back and see it is a glorious portrait. It is this glorious work of art to the praise and honor of the painter. So friends, that's, uh, that's what I got for you this morning. Um, you need to create a category in your brain for this God who can do that. Don't know how far we can get in understanding it. We'll do our best. Um, wish I could say so much more. Um, I, hope, I hope you'll find me if there's something you want to, you know, refute me on or ask a question. You are able to work together for good for those who love God and call according to your purpose. I pray that that promise would be true for people sitting in this room and for me. Whatever sin or weakness or failures come from talking, we would see your hand in your control. We'd look to the story of Joseph and say, that could be our story. That is our story. We trust you. We rest in you. You're there ready to help us all along the way. And at the end, we get to see, Lord willing, all the things that you had going on. May we, that give us hope and rest as we go through all sorts of difficulty and trials. I ask this in the name of the Lord, Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.